For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, in a recent survey by, survey by Pew Research, they asked devout Christians uh, to identify the attitudes and behaviors that they believed were essential to being uh, a Christian. And so, not surprisingly, uh, about 97% said belief in God um, was fundamental to Christian faith. Actually, I don't understand where the other 3% are like... No, you don't need to have belief in God to be a believer, but a Christian. But, um, but after belief in God, the answers become a little more increasingly diverse and interesting. So some of the top responses among, again, devout Christians when asked about things that are essential to their Christian identity, uh, 89% said praying regularly, 70% said reading the Bible regularly, 61% uh, said attending religious services, 47% said serving the church. 47% said not losing your temper. Um, 43% dressed, uh, said dressing modestly. Um, other essentials that featured on the list were uh, included being grateful, helping the poor, spending time with your family, um, all of these sorts of things. Um, and so I wonder if we'd ask that question today, um, because this is, I think, what Jesus is going to answer this question is like, what does it actually mean to be a Christian? Or how, how do you know that you're um, a Christian? And I think it's an important question because in a place like Northern Ireland and even in a place like California, where I live, um, which is seen in America to be like a more kind of like liberal, secular kind of place, there is still um, a lot of kind of cultural Christianity kind of about. Um, most people kind of, uh, you know, could articulate, you know, some of these kind of things of what, what it kind of means to be a Christian. A, a lot of people... Um, have been to a church service, whether that be at a kind of Easter or Christmas or for a wedding or, you know, they've been inside a, a church building in some kind of way. There's still kind of talk about uh, Christian values or traditional values um, as we have uh, societal conversations. But I wonder what Jesus actually has to say about that, right? Because there's a lot of cultural Christianity, and cultural Christianity really is more about kind of religious activity, um, maybe external appearances, rather than how Jesus talks about Christianity or what it is to be a follower of Him. 
um, which is much more a true, internal, life-transforming work of Christ in the life and heart of the individual. So in Northern Ireland, we kind of call cultural Christianity like good living, right? Oh, that person's good living. And what we mean by that is, you know, they try to be a kind of moral, upstanding, you know, kind of good person um, generally. But Jesus asked the question, what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? Or he says, why do you call me Lord? Now, this passage in Luke, um, as we've been, work- you've been working your way through Luke, is, is the end of this sermon that Jesus is giving, this kind of sermon on the plain. It's also the exact same way he ends uh, his paramount teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so there's a lot of these teachings that are included in both. Um, seems like these teachings that Jesus would come to uh, repeatedly um, when he had opportunities with crowds and, and different people. But it's interesting that this is how this parable of these two builders that we've read, these, these two trees, um, is exactly how Jesus ends both of them. And so he's driving at uh, having all of this teaching, all of this way of what it actually means to enter into the kingdom of God, what it, what it means to, to be uh, in, in, in Christ, as we would say that. What does that actually mean? And he drives it home at the very end of both of these with this parable of the difference between just hearing and actually doing. And so it's important what Jesus is getting at. In, in the same kind of uh, sermon that we find in Matthew, in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees would have been like the religious elite of the day. These were the people that everybody would look to. Like, if anybody was going to be in the kingdom of God, surely it's these guys, right? They, they made sure they followed the law to the strictest uh, level. They actually added laws to make sure that they didn't even get close to breaking the laws. So, these were people who, who were seen to be like the religious elite uh, of the day. They followed the letter of the law. They really made sure that they were, you know, doing all that you would think you would do to enter into the kingdom of God. And that Jesus says, no, actually, unless your righteousness exceeds that of them, like what they're doing actually isn't enough. In, in uh, his Sermon on the Mount, here we have the, the way he ends it with the parable of two trees and two builders. Same way he ends it in the Sermon on the Mount. But there he adds a bit in the middle. Um, And he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what he asked the question here, why do you call me Lord? Here he says, not everyone, not even anyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Here, he says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? He's equating them as the same thing. What Jesus says, the will of the Father, they're the same. Right? Jesus says, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. Um, the, the word of God, the, the words of Jesus are one and the same. And so the Lord reminds us that the standard of righteousness that is required for entering the kingdom of God, and unless your life is built on that standard, no matter what it looks like from the outside, no matter what you know in your head, no matter how much feverish uh, cultural Christianity activity you're kind of about, when this flood comes, when this storm comes, we get washed away. What we've actually built is washed away if all we have is kind of a a head knowledge. If all we have is kind of a, a cultural Christian activity, 
um, that's just kind of built on sand. The Pharisees at the time had developed a, a system of, of works righteousness, right? They were relying on, on what they had done or what their, their actual works, their obedience, as you will, as their righteousness. It's a, a humanly devised system of kind of self-stimulated fleshly efforts that, that fall far short of what God actually demands. And Jesus comes along and he offers them a true righteousness, one that's not based on their works. But before they could receive the true righteousness, they had to kind of note the bankruptcy of their own system. They had to come with this beatitude mentality, right? Do you remember Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee? He's in the temple praying, and it says he tells this this, uh, parable to those that were seeking to justify themselves. And the the parable uh, is a Pharisee who's in the temple, and he says, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy this tax collector, this sinner. And he starts to rattle off all of his works and pointing to those as why he's accepted before God. He was seeking to justify himself based on his works. And so there's a a level of we can be about a religious activity and yet not actually follow the way of Jesus. We can point to this external activity and not actually follow the way of Jesus. Because the one who goes away justified, Jesus says, is the tax collector. It's the sinner who couldn't point at a bunch of religious activity. All he could point on was him throwing himself on the mercy of God. And Jesus says it's that one who goes away justified. Because he wasn't seeking to justify himself. He was relying on God to justify him. Often what we really call Christianity is a, a, a moral therapeutic deism, right? It's moral in the sense of like, oh, it's good, like we, we're trying to be good people. It's therapeutic in the sense that it's really there to make us feel good uh, about ourselves. And it's deism in that it points to a deity, but it's not actually what, uh, it's not Yahweh. It's not actually the, as God, is, as he reveals himself through the scripture and through his son, Jesus. Therapeutic deism kind of has five characteristics. One It's a belief that God created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, well, so far so good. Um, It it believes that God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most other religious texts. The central goal of moral therapeutic deism is, uh, the, the central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Fourth, God doesn't need to particularly be involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. And I would say that's how most people, consciously or not, understand kind of Christianity. Oh, there's a God. He created things. He kind of set things into motion. Um, You know, he's up there available. When we get in trouble, we can kind of run to him. But most of the time, you know, try to be good. Live your life to make yourself kind of as happy as possible. And if you're good enough, you kind of go to heaven, you know, in the end. And that's how we kind of live our lives. And yet Jesus comes with this really kind of startling, harsh parable at the end of his teachings, saying, not, those, not everybody who calls me Lord will actually enter into the kingdom. And he says, well, actually, why do you call me Lord if you don't actually obey what I tell you? If you don't actually do, if you don't actually put into action in John chapter 8, 
um, it records this. It's Jesus. And as he was saying these things, so he, again, he's teaching. It says, many believed in him. You're like, that's awesome. That's great. He's teaching. Many people believe in him. And so what's Jesus' response to that belief? Verse 31, John 8. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word. That is, if, if you make that your, where, where you live, if it actually works its way down into our life, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Do you see what he's done? It's, it's that this belief isn't enough. It's, it's a, a, an intellectual assent into, into saying, oh, Jesus is Lord. It, it isn't actually enough. It has to work its way out down into like our, our everyday living, our everyday like how we're abiding. It has to produce a certain kind of fruit. So he starts with, in verse 43, if a good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The kind of tree that it is on the inside, the DNA of that tree is what actually produces that kind of fruit. Um, I actually live in a place that has a lot of fruit trees now. And you can't really tell the difference between an orange tree, a lemon tree, a lime tree, a grapefruit tree. They all kind of look the same until they start to bear fruit. And actually, some of the fruit, when it first starts to come, looks pretty similar too. But you just give it a little while. And when that season of harvest comes, it's clear between an orange and a grapefruit and a lemon and a lime. But for the first part of all of that, they're kind of indistinguishable. So Jesus actually says how we build our life matters. And so we look at the wise builder. What does he say? He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. So it's not just hearing. It's hearing and, and following. It's a hearing and obeying. Actually does them. I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. That word that he uses for rock isn't this, the word that he could, there's different words in, in, in uh, Greek uh, for that. It's not the word for like a rock or like a, a, a stone. It's like a bedrock. He dug down to the bedrock, down to a foundation. Um, and Jesus says this is the one who's wise. Now, we tend to think of being a wise person as someone who possesses wisdom. We sometimes mix, mix up wisdom and intelligence. But Jewish wisdom literature focuses on the ways in which a wise person acts in a particular situation. That is, wisdom is actually revealed by how the person puts that wisdom into action. In Scripture, it's the wise person um, is the one who responds properly to Jesus, Jesus and his teaching. It's the wise person that's able to recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing. A wise servant hears what his master says and is prepared. Wise bridesmaids are prepared for a long wait. They've actually acted on the wisdom. And building a house on solid foundation is simply the wise way to build a house. The wise person builds on a proper foundation and as a result, the house then stands. It's able to withstand winds and storms. Um, where we live in Southern California is really similar to um, Israel in that time in the fact that we don't get a lot of rain. Um, and so it'd be pretty easy to kind of 
think you can kind of build wherever you want to. And, you know, you don't have to worry about rain. You don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. It's always sunny. The, the ground is always hard uh, in that way. Um, but you'd be a fool to actually do that because it does rain sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't even rain where we are, but we, hear, we get the results of that. So it'll storm like crazy up in the mountains. And then all of a sudden we'll have like a flash flood warning. And it's weird to get a flash flood warning when it's sunny outside. Um, but then sure enough, all of a sudden... Water just comes rushing down from the mountains, all the runoff from the mountains, and it fills these, what they call washes, or these kind of dry riverbeds, um, or these places that are dry and hard, and literally just carry everything um, that's in its path. It can be pretty destroying. Um, it can just carry all of the woods and rocks and all kinds of debris um, in a matter of moments. What was dry is now being all washed away. And this is this image uh, that's here. It's someone who, who didn't bother building um, down on the bedrock. They just built on the surface. It's surface level. So when Jesus says a man built his house on a rock and that house was founded on the rock, he's talking about the strong foundation of the house. The foundation is deep in the ground. It's not immediately visible. Its depth and its strength are not evident until it's battered by a storm. And the result is it withstands it. So what is the rock that Jesus is talking about? What does it represent? Well, in, in this parable, it's, it's not just Jesus. That's true, right? Jesus is our rock. He is our fortress. But it's, it's, it's his sayings. It's, it's his commands. It's his teaching and our obedience to that. It's our obedience to the truth that he brings. And Jesus intends a correspondence um, between the two in this parable. It's a correspondence here between his own words, the reference of my father, the will of my father, and how we not just hear that, but how we actually do it. He contrasts that then with a the foolish builder. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The ruin was total. It wasn't just kind of, oh, it got some damage, it can be patched up. It was total destruction. The whole house fell, it collapsed, it's gone. Um, this still happens. Um, so in, uh, it made the news in the U.S., maybe you saw a clip of it here. A man bought an $800,000 home in, on the beach in South Carolina, and six months after he bought it, it became a boat <laughs> because the ocean washed it away. It was like built on sand, on stilts in that kind of way. But enough erosion happened that literally his house was floating into the ocean and just broken up by the waves. Nearly a million dollar investment just gone in a moment. Because it wasn't well built. It wasn't built on anything that could actually withstand a storm, the erosion. But I want us to look at a few bits of application here. Notice the foundation is hidden until the storm comes. In fact, the two houses might even look the same in every way. On the surface, you can't tell a difference. We're, we're not told any of the houses are different. They're built the same way. They're obviously built in the same kind of vicinity or location because it's the same storm um, that, that comes against both of them. The only way you're able to tell which one is which is once the storm comes, it actually reveals the foundation. All the sand, all the surface soil is all washed away, one house with it, the other one left on the bedrock that is revealed. 
And it's the, be- it's, the, it's the foundation that makes all the difference. Now, I think Jesus is speaking in a dual application here of the analogy in this. In, in this case, the storm um, probably refers to a couple different things. One, I think it is difficulties, trials, temptations that will come upon those who profess faith in Christ. So our kind of uh, troubles that we have in this life. And in this way, it kind of reminds um, me of another analogy that Jesus gave when he tells the parable of the four soils. Right? He describes one of the bad soils in this way. He says, um, as, as, this, as he sowed, some seeds fell along a path. Birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. And immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. So the seed gets planted, and it looks like for a moment it's going to grow. It looks like, oh, this might produce some fruit. But it it wasn't deep enough. There wasn't enough roots that went down deep enough. In the same kind of way, the builder didn't dig deep enough. He didn't make the effort to, to, to go all the way down to the bedrock. There was no depth of soil. No effort to dig all the way down to foundation. It was surface level. Also, it's important to notice that Christians aren't spared from the storm. They're only assured that they will withstand it because they've built their life on a sure foundation. This is Jesus' own words, right? In John 16, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So much of our kind of cultural Christianity and that therapeutic deism is just for us to avoid as much kind of trouble we, as we can. And, and God is there to call upon to kind of get us out of a jam. And then once life is comfortable again, we kind of just revert back to our old ways again. Jesus promises us that trial, tribulation, that's just, it's part of us living in the world that we're in. But take heart, he's overcome the world. That we would actually build our life on um, the way of Jesus, his teachings, to follow those, to be obedient to those, that we will actually survive even these temporal storms, the storms of life in this world. And when that happens, the foundation upon which we have built will be evident to all. That's true, right? You've seen, even in this church, people go through difficult times. Even in the last two years, as people have have, um, endured sickness, hospitalizations, uh, loss of loved ones, and to watch people endure that and lean on um, Christ for their life not to collapse, to withstand those storms, those things reveal the foundation that we are building on. This is um, so much of, I think, our cultural dialogue is we are arguing for and contending for what foundations we're going to build lives on. Right? We have these kind of culture wars, these battle for foundations or worldviews that we will build our lives upon. And so it's important that we consider that. What is it that I'm actually building my life on? What is my worldview? What is my logic? What is the way that I actually work through and think through how I actually spend my life, how I actually build my life, how I use my time, where I put my energy, how I raise my family, how I use and spend money or power or my sexuality or whatever it may be, my free time, 
the interior life of my mind, what I set my mind upon, where's my hope? All of these kind of deep kind of seated questions that we all have to wrestle with. This is, these are the conversations that we have um, as nations, as societies, where we will place these things. We see when we, when we don't actually build them on the foundation of Jesus, the ruin is great. In Proverbs, foolishness is always self-destructive. Just go and do a study through Proverbs, which is a lot about foolishness, living foolish and wise lives. Foolishness is always self-destructive. And so Jesus is pleading with us to not just hear his words, but to actually put them into practice, to actually do them. Things like what Jesus commanded. This is just Jesus, his actual words, red letter words you might say. Obviously all of scripture is, is his word. But some of Jesus' commands like to repent, right? To actually turn from uh, the way that we were going without God. To repent from that, to turn from our sin and actually follow him. To follow his example. To rejoice if we actually suffer for his name. To reconcile and love our enemies. And what does that mean in Northern Ireland? What does that mean in a place like the United States where our enemies and our polarizations are highlighted and driven further and further apart? What does it mean to love our enemies? To keep our word, to turn the other cheek, to live generously, to seek first the kingdom of God, to not condemn others, to not be afraid or worry or be anxious, to cast our burdens on Him, to care for the poor, to honor our parents, to be careful of performance-based religion, to abide in His Word, to not be greedy, to care for children, to forgive others, to serve others, to respect authority, to invite the outcast in, to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. What did it actually mean to put those things into practice, to be aware of those things. This isn't just um, Jesus. This, this continues throughout the Scripture. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, says this in, in his first letter in chapter 2. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. So how do you know if you know Jesus? If we keep his commandments. Right? The proof is in the pudding. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Are we walking in the footsteps of Jesus? Are we actually putting those things into practice? Uh, Jesus' half-brother James. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And that's the hard part, right? We can deceive ourselves. It's self-deception. We can actually believe ourselves to be people of God, to call Jesus Lord, and yet in the end, Jesus say, why do you call me Lord if your life doesn't actually produce the fruit that it should be producing? To give lip service 
to me to go through all the religious activity and then walk out of a church service and the rest of your life just kind of is moral therapeutic deism. I, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm not out murdering and killing people. I'm not, you know, I'm better than the other person, better than that guy. Uh, at least I'm not like that person. And we end up like the Pharisee justifying ourselves. Sobering to think that we could deceive ourselves into that. He goes on, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But I think there's another more specific application as we um, start to close that Jesus has been thinking about in this parable. And namely, that the storm isn't just the storms that we face in this life, but the storm that we will all face that is God's final judgment. Certainly, the future judgment is on Jesus' mind in, in this passage. Um, again, we see this in these verses. And it's not an unusual that he would envision a future judgment as a storm. It's a familiar Old Testament analogy that we don't have time to look at. But all throughout the Old Testament, the final judgment is referred to as um, a storm um, that, that will come. Jesus and James, uh, John, all warning us about these storms ahead of time. So that we will be wise builders now and build our lives on truth while we still have an opportunity. It's better to have our self-deception revealed now while we still have something that we can do about it than to be revealed in the future judgment when it's too late. And this is why Jesus is so urgent in his conclusion of his teachings to not just hear, not just say we believe, but to actually have that work its way into our life to where we act. Now, if you've been a village at any time, maybe you're thinking right now, okay, but this doesn't sound like what <laughs> teaching normally sounds like here. Are you saying then that we have to be and do certain things to be Christians? Or is that not then what the Pharisee is doing? Are we not relying on our works um, to be Christians? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2 because I think it's important for you to actually look at this as we finish. It's important that we don't mistake our sanctification for our justification. What do I mean by that? Let's read the passage and we'll see. Ephesians says, And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in, once, in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay? So what is he saying? We were, were all born spiritually dead. Right? Dead people can't bring themselves to life. They are dead. 
We can't do self-CPR. We can't self-resuscitate. We are dead in our sins. We are following along our desires, our passions of disobedience. We're carrying out the desires of our body, mind. We are natures of God's wrath. He says, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we're dead. Christ in his mercy, God in his his mercy and his love, raises us to new life, raises us up to make us alive together with Christ, strictly by grace we've been saved, and raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so this is where we have to see, see these two things as different. In the parable, the guy was boasting of his own works and relying on that for his righteousness. Jesus says he's not justified before God. It's the one who's strictly thankful for God's mercy upon his life that walks away justified. So we don't mistake our sanctification for our justification. What does that mean? Our justification is it's an act of God to make you just or right because we're united to Christ and he is just. It's, it's his righteousness that makes us righteous through faith. So we stand before God, and when God says, you know, why should I let you into eternity? Our, our only response and reaction to that is to point to Jesus. It's, we are clothed in his righteousness, his righteousness alone. It's the work of Christ through his death and resurrection um, that we point to, not our own works for that. Right? And that's all an act of God to make us just and, and righteous before him. That's justification. Our sanctification, also an act of God through his spirit and work to change us step by step to make us more into the likeness of Jesus. And he does that through his spirit to produce good works in us. So let's continue to read in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go to verse 8 again. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of this is an act of God. He saves us through faith in Christ. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh and gives us his spirit indwelling in us. And his spirit produces a different set of desires. We're no longer following the desires of our our nature, of, of our sinful flesh. Now the spirit produces fruit in us. That is patience, it's kindness, it's self-control, it's holiness. Our desires are different now. Our desires are no longer sinful desires or they're less becoming sinful desires. Our desires are to actually please God 
produces a, a love for God and a love for other people, it's the only way by which we can love our enemies. I don't, I don't want to love enemies on my own. God does a work internally within us through His Spirit to change us, to make us more like Him. It's all, it's all because of what God has done for us through Christ. We can believe that in our head, but not actually walk that out in obedience. But we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus is the righteousness for us. He's the righteousness in us. The second is built on the first. And that's the good news of the gospel. And so as we sit here this morning, if we're asking ourselves that question, am I, am I a Christian? That's a good question to ask. Um, we should have assurance of that. And that assurance is we can actually look to the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our life. It's the two trees that Jesus started uh, um, before the, the two builders. Good trees produce good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit within us. And so I'm not a sinless person by any stretch. There's still things that frustrate me deeply <laughs> about my lack of holiness at times. One of the things that I'm so looking forward to in heaven is what I'm like without sin. And yet I can look back um, over decades of walking with Jesus and just see him slowly producing the fruit of the Spirit in my life. doesn't mean I'm perfect. I still have to lead a life of repentance. But that repentance is because of his kindness to me. It's his kindness, it's his mercy that leads us to repentance. That leads us from turning from our own ways once again actually building a life, digging down to that foundation. Before Christ, I had no desire for that. I had no desire to do the hard work of digging up hard soil, getting down to that foundation, realizing that this is actually where life is found. This is how we weather the storms in this life and the final storm of God's judgment. And this is what actually leads to a life of flourishing, of joy, of peace, a place that I can actually give my cares to the Lord, to be abiding in, in His presence. And so there are times where I'm not actually obeying Christ in, in areas of my life, but even in that, His kindness leads me back to repentance. So that it's not just lip service of calling him Lord, but the Spirit working out even the desires um, to change my life and to follow the way of Jesus. I hope that that's what we would be known for. I hope that um, Village would be a place um, that is marked by those kind of people. Not just people giving lip service. Not just people who would um, sing songs, sit through a, a, a sermon, and then walk out the door and like the man in James, forget what he's even seen in the mirror and just kind of live lives that are, eh, we'll just try to be good people. 
But really, we're just kind of living our life for us, what makes us most kind of comfortable and, and happy. May we throw ourselves again at the mercy of God and ask Him once again um, to uh, revive us, to change our desires, um, to actually give us the uh, ability to walk in His ways as He's promised to do. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that um, our good works are never sufficient enough. Um, our works that are, that are produced by our flesh, um, they don't make it through uh, the fire, as it were. They just get burned up in the end. It's only uh, the works that you produce in us, uh, the good works that, that last the good, look, the good works uh, that are built on a foundation. And so, Father, we pray for your wisdom this morning. Uh, we pray for um, your spirit to produce in us um, the desires, the abilities to be able to see our sin, uh, to be able to turn from those things, to be able to dig deep and, and build our lives on, on the ways of Jesus that we wouldn't just um, call Jesus Lord, but that we would actually make Jesus Lord, that we would actually act as if He is Lord. Father, we thank You for Your patience with us. We thank You that You are long-suffering. We thank You that You have promised to never leave us or forsake us, and that those of us that are truly yours could never be taken from your hand, that we could have that assurance this morning because of what your spirit has done in giving us a heart of flesh. Father, there are times like the prodigal son where we, we, we leave that foundation, we try to go out and build a life of our own. Father, we thank you for those times where you bring us back to our senses. often through difficulty, often through pain, but that you are a Father who is um, waiting to receive us with open arms again, to kill the fatted calf, to put a ring on our finger, to welcome us back into the fold. So, Father, for the prodigal sons that are here this morning, um, Father, I just pray that they would hear your voice again, that they would return home. Father, for the, for the other prodigal son who's relying on his own kind of works, it's left outside in the cold. Um, Father, we pray that they too would hear your voice, that they would repent of building a life on their own, good works, comparing themselves to people who aren't as bad as they are and realize that all of this is our own efforts. Father, I pray that we would um, believe again this morning uh, that your way actually is the way of life, that a life apart from you just leads to death, that the way of Jesus is um, flourishing in this life and joy forevermore in your presence. Father, we long for the day um, 
where sin is no more, where our sanctification is complete, where our justification sees its full realization as we stand clothed in your righteousness alone. May that reality um, lead us into further joy this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen.